apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are simply asking this morning for you to speak to our hearts. We're asking for you to teach us from your word the principles of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2009, I was in Michigan studying as a college student at Michigan State University. And that summer, I uh, embarked on an experience. (laughs) I was a big booker, so we called it. What is a big booker? A big big booker is uh, an individual who goes around door-to-door, door-to-door sales in a sense, and sells these Bible story books from door to door. They're big and they're blue, and so we call them big, the big blue books. You may have seen them in doctors and dentist offices in the past or when you were growing up. They're these hardcover blue books um, that outline uh, the whole entire Bible, really, um, for children. And so that summer, 2009, I was a big booker. And so I would drive around in my gold Chevy Malibu and uh, knock on doors and try and get people to purchase these big blue books. And so for 13 weeks of that summer, 2009, a handful of college kids did life together. We would wake up at the crack of dawn, we'd have our devotions, we'd read our Bibles, Then we'd handle our morning chores, I'd go in the kitchen, other people would stock books, etc. We'd cook, we'd clean. Then we'd take a moment, because we were going out solo, we'd map out our territory, figure out what our plan was for that day, what doors we were going to knock on. We'd eat breakfast together. We'd have worship together. One of us students would would lead in worship, a, a worship thought. We'd get dressed, and then by 11 a.m., every single morning from Sunday to Thursday, we'd head out, and we wouldn't return until 8 p.m. or so, or past, past 9 sometimes. We did this for 13 weeks. And in that time, we made some of the deepest bonds of our young lives. Very deep. I mean, 13 weeks. (laughs) We prayed together. We suffered together. 
Okay, we, it was hot, okay? Every day we're going out in the hot sun. My car's air conditioning broke, okay? So I'm sweating every single day, pulling up. I'm already drenched. I mean, this wet, sweaty saleswoman <laughs> coming up to your door selling Bible books. I mean, the stories are, they're something. We cried together. We shared testimonies together. We laughed together. Oh, man, did we laugh. Laughed at our sufferings and pain. <laughs> we broke bread together. We ate together. And often, we sang together. Something that I love to do is sing. And when you sing and make a joyful noise together, it's a bonding experience. We also fought together. We argued. We had disagreements but we sought the Lord on behalf of one another as well. We saw miracles, we studied together. Basically, by the end of 13 weeks, our souls were like knit together. It was unforgettable. And although we have since grown older, I mean, that was 2009, here we are in 2023, Time has changed us. Life has led us all in different directions. If I saw any one of my companions from that time, there would be a comfort, a familiarity, a welcome in the exchange. I mean, we, you'll never forget. You'll never forget. It doesn't matter where on the globe we are. I could be here. They could be across the ocean. If we were ever to meet up, the bond would remain. Because it's impossible to not form a bond with the people you did life with. It's very difficult to not form a bond with people who you sought the Lord with. And I believe that within this small summer cohort that I experienced, that I received a clearer understanding of heaven's model of fellowship. Heaven's model of, of fellowship, a space of authenticity, a space of depth, a space of being known. And so we're looking at the book of Acts. And for context, the book of Acts is the aftermath of what happened after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, after he went back to heaven. And this is the aftermath of uh, uh, the, the leadership of, of the apostles. And so Acts 1 begins with Jesus giving his last instructions to the disciples. He tells them that they would be his witnesses about his life, death, and resurrection and the hope of salvation, right? They would be his witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And so then Jesus ascends back into heaven and they watch him fade away into the sky. And they're assured by angels that, look, this same Jesus who you saw go into heaven will return the same way that you saw him go. And so after that, they dispersed, they uh, uh, prayed and, and, and found an individual to take over the place of Judas because we all know what happened to him. If you don't, read Matthew 26 and 27. And immediately the account transitions to all the believers together in prayer and receiving the Holy Spirit. 
the Bible says cloven tongues of fire fell upon them in a room as they were praying. And as a result of this, they received boldness. And Peter gets up and he makes this big speech at Pentecost. People, Jews from all over the globe come to this one spot and Peter is preaching and everyone hears Peter's message in the language that they were born speaking. A miracle of the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues. And so Peter is preaching and he makes this call for repentance and for baptism. And the Bible says that many Uh, many believers were added to the group. And so then immediately the scene clips to our focal point for this morning. It clips to fellowship amongst the believers. What did it look like? What did it look like? And so here is my question that I'm seeking to answer this morning. What impact does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have on the relationships between believers? What does the gospel or Jesus' experience, his walk here in life, his, his, his mission, how does that impact us today? What, ex, what, what, what impact does that have in our relationships with one another? Well, let's try and find out here. As I'm asking myself that question, or as I was asking myself that question, this scripture came to mind, John 12, 32. It says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Okay, in this particular scripture, he was speaking specifically about his death that he would suffer on the cross, but Just for a second, follow my line of thinking, okay? For a large portion of the gospel, or the entirety of it, honestly, you'll see that unless Jesus went into private quarters or was hiding out, wherever he was, people gathered. Okay, you follow me? When he did miracles, multitudes gathered. When he spoke, crowds flocked. And when he was crucified, people, diverse in nation, kindred, and tongue, they gathered there at the foot of the cross. I'm getting to something here. When Christ is the focal point, people draw towards him. That's why the Bible talks about light of Jesus, Jesus is the light of the world, right? People are attracted to light. Everything is attracted. When Jesus is the focal point, people draw towards him. And as a result of drawing towards Jesus, by default, the people draw towards one another. If everyone is drawing to the same spot, eventually we're all going to press together and come closer to one another. We begin to press in. Here's a principle. Our proximity to Christ or your relationship with Christ will by default impact your proximity and relationship with other people. The closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to others who also seek him. 
you will by default come into close proximity with those who are sharing a similar experience. So while Christ is drawing you towards him, he's also doing the same for your sister here, your brother here, your father's in Christ, your mom's in Christ, your auntie's drawing all of us towards himself and by default, us together. First John chapter 1, 1 through 3 talks kind of about this experience and it says this, reflect uh, us starting by speaking about their their what they saw when Jesus came to earth that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest that's Jesus and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us and then it says that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, I'm telling you about my experience so that you too can draw close to Jesus Christ. And by draw drawing close to Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with one another. I, don't, I think sometimes we don't think about it that way. And I think it's important to not separate our relationship with Jesus from our relationship with each other. And the amazing thing about this concept is that we actually have a real life picture of what this looks like. And it's found in Acts chapter 2. 42 through 47, which says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. There is so much in this passage, we're not going to be able to cover everything, so I'm just going to pull out uh, some, some key pieces here. And the first is this, as a result of the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ being preached, those who received the message by faith, those who believed it to be true, those that believed there was a man named Jesus that came to provide forgiveness and a fresh start at life, they unified with one another. They unified. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings unity. What does unite mean? What's the definition? Unite, come or bring together for a common purpose or action. You know, in the Old Testament, in the, in the, in the story of the Tower of Babel, God shares a timeless principle uh, about unity or even oneness, the Bible likes to call it. 
And the principle is this, is that whether for good or for evil, the force of unity is unstoppable. If you're unified, much can be done. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. Oh, goodness, I just closed my... Genesis chapter 11. And verse 6, it says this. Oh, well, for context, this is what's happening. So... Uh, uh, there were numerous people on the earth at this time, and at this time, everyone spoke the same language, okay? This was right after the flood, okay? Noah's Ark, the flood, God floods the whole earth, and the earth begins to repopulate with uh, uh, Noah's children and family. And so it repopulates, and so the people come together and they say, what if a flood happens again? We don't want that to happen, so let's build towers as high as the sky, all the way up to the sky, to make sure to prevent this from ever happening and we can save ourselves. Okay, something wrong with that theology, but we can talk about that later. So they begin to build. And the Bible says that God comes down. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. He said, they're one people. They have one language. Anything that they want to do will not be impossible. So the Bible says, God confounds their language. And he makes everyone speak different languages. So now they can't unify and they have to disperse and spread out among the globe. Now, I'm talking about a timeless principle here. We're talking about unity, all right? We're talking about unity. God himself said, if unity occurs, that that which is set out to be accomplished will happen. Now, what does this have to do? Uh, what exactly, here in the book of Acts, going back, what exactly was their unified purpose in the early church? What was their unified purpose? And this is what I concluded. Their unified purpose in Acts 2 was loving each other and loving each other well. I know that's not, that may not seem deep, but if God says that if you're unified for a cause, that nothing will be impossible for you, then to love and to love well will be accomplished. Everyone was of the same mind. Everyone was united in, with this in the idea or on the idea that the needs of those within their community of believers could and would be met by the whole. By their unification, they seem to kind of stamp out the societal hierarchy based on class within the community. Kind of stamps out differences, right? Now, though in practice, 
today, that may look different contextually for a church in New York City in 2023, right? But the principle remains true. Unity is an unstoppable force. When we unify on the conviction of loving each other and loving each other well, this community will be an unstoppable force of blessing and light. And when we speak of this in the context of a gospel community, the poet Frederick, uh, Frederick, I just pressed something and I shouldn't have. The poet Frederick von Schiller, he says this. He says, <laughs> come back. Even the weak become strong when they are united. Right? Okay, I need... There we go. All right. <laughs> Keep scrolling. Even the weak become strong when they are united. When we act together, we become a force unstoppable for good, to love and to love well. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the catalyst for believers to unify with one another. They became of one mind in mission and purpose. But that's not it. What else did the resurrection, life, death, and resurrection bring? When we talk about loving someone well, we could rephrase it or recoin it under the term other-centeredness. Other-centeredness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the catalyst for an other-centered community. Look at verse 45. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily what needs to be done unless God has moved you to do that, selling your possessions and such. This is just what they did that made sense for their context in their time. The underlying principle is that they were identifying needs of others within their community and meeting them by a sacrificial means. In other words, a standard within this community was thinking of the well-being of one another. No one comes in last. Everyone's fed, everyone's good, everyone's taken care of. In reality, being other-centered or other-focused is not simply about what possessions I have that I can give away. It's a more holistic approach is thinking along the lines of what skills, what talents, what knowledge, what understanding or resources do I possess that could be a benefit to my brother or my sister in Christ? Is there a need that they have that I'm able to meet? There is a spirit of honest, genuine care for the other person who also is journeying on this road to Zion with you. What is that journey to Zion? That's just a phrase to say we're headed to the realm of the Lord. Marching to Zion. I remember when I was younger, this, this spirit of genuine care. Uh, 
I'm the last of four. I'm sure I've said that in some sermon in time past. I have three older siblings, and um, my single Nigerian immigrant mother, we lived in this apartment in Grand Rapids, and one of our next door neighbors, every Christmas, he would bring us a Christmas tree because he knew we didn't have one. So he would go and he would cut one down, he'd get one for himself, and I imagine maybe he got some for a couple of other people, but he took us under his wing, and so every Christmas he would cut down an extra tree and he'd bring it to us and we'd have a Christmas tree. And so he'd do that every year, every year, and finally we moved away from that apartment and uh, we moved to another location in the city. And he called up my mom, got our address, And as years continued, he would come regularly and bring a Christmas tree. His name was John. Now, I don't know what happened to John. Eventually, we stopped getting Christmas trees. I imagine that he he was an older gentleman, so he probably passed. But John cared. If that was something that meant a lot to him, Christmas time, and he cared, and he said, I want to make sure that your family has a Christmas tree for the holiday. That spirit of genuine care and concern, that was in the early church. They made sure that their widows, who who couldn't really survive in society because of the way society was set up, they made sure they were taken care of. They made sure the kids were covered. Anyone who had need, anyone going through financial troubles, if they were a part of that community, they were going to be taken care of. There's a, a, a portrait, I don't know it's a story, it's, I, I believe it to be true, a story that uh, there was a painter that was told to paint a picture of hell and heaven. And so the painter begins to paint And he starts with hell. And he paints a picture of people sitting around in this great room in this long table of feasting. And they're trying to feed themselves. Except there's a catch. And the catch is they can't bend their elbows. (laughs) They can't bend their elbows. And so they're flailing around, and you see a mess on the table. And people are angry because they can't eat. The painter says, that's hell. So then he paints a picture of heaven. And he paints the same picture, except this time, no one's angry. There's no food all over the place. Everyone's happy and joyous. And the same issue They can't bend their elbows. But in heaven, in the painting of heaven, they all feed each other. They don't need to bend their elbows. If everyone fed their neighbor, everyone gets fed. They feed each other. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the catalyst for other-centered community. Other-centered community. But it is also, the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the catalyst for genuine fellowship. Genuine fellowship. I told you in those 13 weeks, I got a little taste of what real fellowship is. (laughs) Family. Look at verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Look at verse 46. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. I don't know if you saw the repeat there, but I spotted it because I'm hungry and I like food. And it says, breaking of bread. (laughs) Breaking bread in their homes. If you're wondering why the breaking of bread is a critical part of genuine fellowship, it's because when you share a meal, you share an experience. Uh, There's an article the University of Oxford wrote uh, or put out in in 2017, I believe. And And the title of the article is this, Social Eating connects communities. And it says this, I'll just read you uh, uh, the initial uh, paragraph. It says, new research from the University of Oxford has revealed that the more often people eat with others, the more likely they are to feel happy and satisfied with their lives. They used data from a national survey called the big lunch. (laughs) And the researchers looked at the link between social eating and an individual's happiness, the number of friends that they have, their connection to their community, and their overall satisfaction with life. The results suggest that communal eating increases social bonding and feelings of well-being and enhances one's sense of contentment and embedding within the community. Wow. I mean, I already knew there was something special with eating, but they said it, (laughs) right? If you eat together enough times, bonds will form and anonymity will decrease. Can't be anonymous. I hope it's not a surprise to us that that one of the main needs of human beings is to know others, know them well, and to be known by them. That is the craving of the human experience. We are communal beings. We want to know people and we want them to know us. And so everyone, whether they know it or not, has a desire to be truly and fully known and loved. The breaking of the bread has a way of reinforcing unity, oneness, identity even. For example, um, when I was younger, well, my favorite meat was goat meat. (laughs) Oh, yes. Snap twice for goat meat. (laughs) And my mom would make this Nigerian stew, you know, and it was spicy, hot, Spice and also steaming hot, how we ate it as well. But anyways, when I was little, my my teeth were not strong enough to to chomp on the goat meat. 
And so my mom would take a piece and she'd break it and she'd nibble it in her mouth and then she'd feed little me with the goat meat and I'd eat it right on up. <laughs> and my mom would feed me. But it was, it was a bonding experience, right? Like, this is my mom. I can eat from her hands, right? It connected us. It also connected me to that food. <laughs> but it reinforced identity. It reinforced oneness. It reinforced the connection. And so now watch this. So as Paul is talking about the experience of uh, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, he says this, look, I do not, and, and let me give you the reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he says this, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into, uh, uh, excuse me, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all eat the same spiritual food and all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. The fact that they're doing the same thing, they're eating the same thing, they're drinking the same thing, they're living the same experience is reinforcing this bond and connection, not only between them and God, but each other. They went through the same bonding process. And you know, Jesus talks about food all the time. I mentioned earlier that wherever Christ is, people will gather, right? You know what else makes people gather? Food. <laughs> Wherever there's food, you're going to find some people. Okay, good food. Let me put that caveat. <laughs> Wherever there's food, good food, you're going to find people. People will gather. And so Christ calls himself the bread of life. And he invites us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he feeds us the manna, the bread from heaven. And he institutes communion with the last supper, the bread and the wine. And he tells us, come and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The breaking of the bread is a critical piece to genuine fellowship because you got to sit face to face right you got to sit within proximity you got to do something very human together and so one of the reasons why this kitchen celebration that we're having today is such a big deal is because we want to break bread with you we want to establish deeper bonds and relationships with one another we want to live out those kingdom principles of unity, of other-centeredness, of genuine fellowship. We're getting rid of the anonymity, being anonymous. We're tired of people walking in and walking out and leaving unknown. We want more. 
And if you want more, then this is the place for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the catalyst for genuine fellowship. And it is also a revelation of the principles of the kingdom of heaven. All of these things that we talked about today, when you get to heaven, you'll see them there. You'll see it there. And so God wants us to start that experience right here, right now. Is that what you want? I hope it is. Because that's what I want. I want a space, I want a community that's authentic, that's genuine, that's real, and that's where I can be known. And so I pray that this is your prayer. And may God help it to be our experience. Amen.